There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden. We're recording this podcast on a Friday morning, so the second round of the NBA playoffs are about to begin. The NFL draft is around the corner, and we are a month away from graduation. Janae Adams from Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta is back online with us today. Hey, Janae, how's it going? And uh, are you watching the NBA playoffs? Hey, I'm doing great. You know, of course, I'm watching the NBA playoffs. I'm ready for my Golden State Warriors to win another ring. So, you know, I'm tuned in. Yeah. I, we didn't hear from you when they blew that 31-point lead. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and Tucker 2 <laughs> from Tucker 2 <laughs> Tucker 2 from Morehouse College in Atlanta is also on the line with us today. Hey, Tucker, how are you feeling about the playoffs so far? I'll, I'll rub it in, too, Bill. I, I, I don't know how Janae's feeling about that uh, 31-point <laughs> you know, leave being blown, but I, I, I've been enjoying the playoffs so far, and Janae, you know, Bay Area stand-up, Damian Lillard's been hooping. That's right. Yes. Prediction, who's going to play in the finals? Just prediction. Who's going to be in the finals? I got I got Warriors, and I'm going to just say, I got, I really want Giannis to make it, so Bucks. Okay, what about you, Tucker? Yeah, I would I would agree. I would say the Bucks are the best team in the East right now, and uh, the Warriors. You know, they're, they're they're hard to beat with with or without Demarcus. I think I think they're winning it. Well, I say get ready for Houston and Boston. You heard it here first. Houston and Boston. That's right. What? All right. Yeah, okay. We'll see. We will see. We'll see. I like Boston. We'll see. All right. Hey. Anyway, guys, this is the most interesting series of Nets. Yeah, the boss. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be. Well, we'll see, but we shall see. Uh, we have a great lineup today. First up, we're talking to CEO of NFL alumni Beasley Reese about his career in the league and how he's working to improve the lives of retired players. Then, in the second half of the show, we'll discuss Beyonce's new documentary entitled "Homecoming" about her groundbreaking performance at Coachella, aka Beachella, last year. Taryn Finley, the editor of Huffington Post Black Voices Vertical, covered the event last year. So Taryn's going to join us in studio to share her thoughts on the documentary and what it means for HBCUs and Beyonce today. So let's get right to it. Uh, the NFL season may be over, uh, but there is a lot happening for players entering and exiting the league right now. Next year's schedule was recently announced, and in Nashville, Tennessee, a first for the state. The NFL draft will begin Thursday, April 25th, and will end on April 27th. Now, Beasley Reese, this 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 may uh, bring up memories for our guest. Uh, Beasley Reese was drafted in 1976 by the Dallas Cowboys, uh, and he played with three teams over a nine-year career, and then went on to become a broadcaster for NBC and CBS, and is currently the CEO of the NFL Alumni. Now, this is a non-profit that works to support players after they leave the NFL. Uh, Beasley Reese is on the line with us today to tell us more about his career and what options retired players have after they leave the game. Hey, uh, 
Beasley, welcome to the show. Bill, thank you very much for having me. It is so good to uh, talk to you. It's been, I don't know, decades. It's been several decades. <laughs> decades, Yeah, man. since you were a uh, very young reporter in the giant locker room, and uh, <laughs> we got to know each other, but it's it's been great watching your career, and thanks for having me on. Oh, man, Beasley, same here, man. Uh, you really, you've always sort of been the epitome of um, the athlete who makes the most out of the career and then segues into uh, great careers off the court, I mean, off the field. Um, you know, you've done great things with, with the networks and obviously with the uh, retired players. So it's really, the feeling is the feeling is mutual. Um, what stands out? Uh, to you about about draft day and, and are you going to be watching the draft next week I always watch it um it, it's such a, a uh, important moment in a player's life you know it's it's a it's a dream come true uh on my draft day in 1976 uh there was no ESPN there was really no we couldn't watch it on television we I sat by the phone for probably 30 hours just <laughs> looking at the phone. And, uh, you know, a buddy would call, and and I'd, I'd go off on him, you know. <laughs> right. what, what Why are you calling the line? Man? <laughs> you know not to call me right now. <laughs> and so that went on for a full day, and then the next day I, I gave up and left my apartment, my college apartment, and... Uh, one of my best friends had to come find me to tell me that the Dallas Cowboys uh, called and they drafted me. North Texas State University is probably 45 minutes, what it was back then, from uh, the Cowboys training facility. Wow. So it was just amazing. The, the, the entire campus erupted. Mm. It was an impromptu parade. It was amazing. Oh wow! A day I'll never forget. Wow! Uh, so you didn't even know what what round was that? What round were you drafted on? That was in the ninth round, and back then we had seventeen rounds. They drafted everybody, <laughs> and one of the things that we achieved in collective bargaining is uh, we only have seven rounds now, so that the other guys are free agents and they can negotiate with several teams so there's a lot that happens you know people only see the seven rounds but after that seventh round there's a lot of work being done by uh, nfl management personnel and by agents and players because uh, a lot of those guys make teams and have great careers uh, and uh, they're able to talk to two or three teams so they those a lot of those players do better than the sixth and seventh round guys that you actually hear their name called. What, what year was that? What year did uh, did you go uh, did you go to seven rounds? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It, it's been it's been seven rounds for a long time, though. Right. Uh, that's and which is better for the players? Because, because then what they did was they drafted everybody. I see. So, so but why? <laughs> they drafted why? everybody, and they, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, what they did, Bill, was they took control of your destiny by drafting everybody that they thought had any kind of shot. So you were the property of a team mm. by stopping after seventh round, stopping after seven rounds, those, the rest of those guys can 
look at a roster and, you know, let's say I'm a, a wide receiver. I can look at a roster. There's two or three teams that have a weak wide receiver roster, and I can talk to those teams and put myself in a better position. Mm. So it's almost it's a, it's, it's a way of free agency in a way. It is a form of free agency, and it was purposely uh, negotiated uh, by the players' union uh, to allow those guys to fr- the freedom to pick and choose. Hmm. What what year did the NFL get free agency? I mean, true free agency. I know it wasn't. It must have been eighty four. Um, I, I was talking to Warren Moon recently, and he said that he really. He was the first one to sign a, I think he he became the highest paid player or quarterback in 1984, but it was only because, you know, he was in Canada all those years and he wouldn't let, he, you know, after he didn't get drafted, he said he didn't want to get drafted after, I guess, the seventh round because he wanted to be able to, you know, be a free agent. So when he came to the NFL from Canada, there was a bidding war because nobody had his rights, kind of exactly what you were talking about. And so because of that, um, he became, uh, you know, he became the highest paid quarterback uh, because there are still no free agents uh, in the NFL. Do you ever know when when the NFL got free agency? Well, I don't, well it's, it's difficult to define it because when we had the NFL and the AFL, when they were separate businesses, separate entities, um, there was free agency because a guy could either sign with the AFL or sign with the NFL. And so uh, salaries advanced significantly during that period. And so they, the owners got together. They, they are the best business people in this country. And they got together and they merged, uh, not for entertainment purposes or you know, to, to grow the league, but to control uh, the big salaries that were uh, being achieved by these agents because there were two different leagues. So, uh, that, so that was a time of free agency. Uh, in the 1920s, when uh, they formed the NFL, it was basically formed for the purpose of controlling the movement of athletes. Because a guy would play a college game on Saturday, uh, jump on a train, and play a pro game on Sunday. Hmm. So uh, all of these things were were done for business purposes. The NFL has done a heck of a job of controlling their their business. This, this spring league uh, just folded recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time somebody tries to compete against them, uh, the NFL such a, has such a hold on the business. Uh, and they have a certain amount of control over the uh, television markets. And that's one of the reasons that there's so much football now. Mm. The league makes sure that everybody has a piece of the pie. So now you got a Thursday night game and you got a, so, so, you know, ESPN, CBS, NBC, every, ABC, everybody's got something so that they don't become a venue where a, new league can find a home. Mm. So, once again, um, the NFL is uh, brilliantly managed and uh, and on, on, the, on the positive side for the NFL, uh, they are doing a, a lot 
for former players that a lot of people don't know about. Hmm. So they, they're doing a good job all the way around. I know that you, um, <clears throat> you know, you made the transition into broadcasting following your, your playing career. How was that transition and what sparked your interest in, in journalism? Well, it was it was easy for me. Uh, I was a journalism major at the University of North Texas. Um, I um, told all the reporters, uh, like Bill, who were around, that I had interest in in uh, the business. I, you know, I didn't keep it a secret. I told all the reporters and writers and TV guys that uh, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I purposely develop relationships with them so that they would, you know, give me tips and we, we talk about it. it. It was easy for me and, and my timing, you know, a lot of, a lot of things in life. I came along at the right time when, uh, they were looking for a couple of things. One, they were looking for African-Americans, uh, on television. There were very few, one or two in each town. Uh, every station I worked at in the early years, I was the first front line, first string uh, person on the desk. You know, they had uh, African Americans had to work on the weekends or early mornings, uh, but that those prime slots, uh, I was a first in Tampa at my station. I was a first in Connecticut. You know, one of the first in that first wave. So they were looking for me and. What uh, the legendary great late Howard Cosell termed as jockocracy, uh, they were looking for former athletes to be placed in a pro underneath the head, headline of pro professional analyst as opposed to two reporters, you know, one's the play-by-play and one's the analyst. And so at my time, I was right in the sweet spot where um, I was able to get in. And when I retired in Tampa, two television stations in town called me immediately and offered me jobs. So, And that was my first taste of free agency. Uh, right. <laughs> right. To have two different TV stations calling me. Did you work while you were playing? I did. I had a show in New York on, a, on one of the early cable shows. It was the... Um, NADA Sports Clinic, I believe that was the name of it. It was the National Association for Disabled Athletes. Uh, we showed the first uh, video of arthroscopic surgery. You know, they, they had just developed the ability to have a video camera, a camera inside the medical devices where you could look inside of an operation. We we did a lot of groundbreaking uh, things, and I did that while I was with the Giants. Oh, wow. And so I had video. I had video. You know, most guys are just saying, "Hey, uh, I just retired. Uh, people know my name," which I'm not. Don't take light of that because think about the money that a television station spends. Whoever's listening to this in your town, think about all the commercials and. Pro- promos that they do to get you to know the new weather guy or the new weather uh, woman or the new anchor that they just brought in. They do all kinds of stuff to get you. Well, when you hire a guy who was uh, a very popular player in your town, uh, you don't have to spend that money. Time is money. 
And so that's another reason that the, that athletes are so popular as analysts is they have the name recognition, they have their own following, and uh, today they're even buying people's social media accounts. They'll look at a guy and say, well, he's got X number of followers and this, that, and that, and they'll take advantage of that and hire him uh, to uh, promote their programs. So with the NFL alumni, um, so in addition to raising money for children's charities, the um, NFL alumni has been working to get health care for retired players. So is this work connected to what's happening with the NFL's Player Association and the Fairness for Athletes in Retirement? Well, uh, the, that, that's been a challenge from the beginning. In 1982, one of the things that we achieved when we, uh, we held a strike, a uh, very unpopular strike, as you can imagine, in the public, it was, not, it was a very difficult time. I was the player rep with the New York Giants, and, you know, if you're the player rep in New York, um, you know, there's a bullseye uh, on you because it's just it's the number one market and the most powerful market. So that was a very difficult time, but one of the things that we achieved was the right to look at our medical records. Now think about that. I'm in an industry, I'm in a profession where the chance of injury is 100%. Right. And I didn't have the right to get a second opinion or to even view my medical history, my medical records. Uh, that was all the property of the teams. And one of the things that we achieved was the right to get a second opinion, a right to have another doctor review the medicines that we've been given, the procedures that we have undergone, and, uh, you know, have a second voice, that's one of the most important things that we achieve. So uh, to answer your question, the alumni, uh, we are very actively uh, achieving a patchwork medical coverage for players. Uh, I recently, you know, most of my people, the people that I work for, my players are between the age of 50 and 70. That's our biggest number. And we have guys in their 20s and we have guys in their 80s. But um, our biggest group is that 50 to 70 range. And, you know, that's the range that's having the sleep, serious sleep apnea problems and the heart problems. You know, people think cancer is the killer. It's actually the heart. The mm -hmm. heart is the one you have to take care of. That's taking more of us out than anything else. So, that you know, that's significant. We have 63 different programs. Now, there's a small percentage of these programs are things like discounts on a rental car or a place to go take a vacation. Fifty-plus of these programs have some medical advantage. There's somebody that will either do your hip replacement, knee replacement, for free or at an extremely uh, discounted rate. And so, you know, it, it, there's a, a litany of uh, things like that that we negotiate. But, but you know, we're NFL players. I mean, there's so much money in that industry and in that business that I shouldn't be in the business of putting together a patchwork health care program. But that, that's where we are. And hopefully with this new collective bargaining agreement, uh, the NFL will 
offer all of us uh, health coverage. Now, listen, I know what I'm asking. You know, I know people in the healthcare industry are saying, does, it, does he realize how much that'll cost? Hmm. And, and I do. And I and I know that the NFL has done a great job with a lot. There are programs that people know nothing about. Hmm. Uh, if you want to finish your college degree, uh, there's reimbursement. If you want to, if you need help in the transition, there's a telephone number. There's a telephone number for anything that could happen to an NFL player. So oh. the movement, the, the train is in motion. Uh, I'm just hoping that the new agreement uh, does two things, uh, health care for former players, and the second thing is, pension improvements for the guys that played before 1993. Uh, their pensions today are awesome. Uh, if you retire today from the NFL, you have several hundred thousand dollars in a bank account that you can use uh, any way you see fit. Yeah. So if you want to, if you have sleep apnea, you need to buy a machine to help you sleep, and it's several hundred or several thousand dollars you can draw from that fund now that fund has a limit you know it's three or four hundred thousand dollars somewhere around in there and so that that fund should last these guys for a long time if they get into businesses where they are, are professions i should say where they have adequate health care then they're they're only using very small amounts of that but if they have no health care coverage we all know that if something major was to happen to you something catastrophic that fund would be uh, depleted uh, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey uh, BZ, and, and we have a, a few more minutes left. I just want to ask you a couple things. Um, uh, switching gears, what what's your what are your thoughts on the uh, the Rooney Rule? I know we've seen interviews with you. What 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 are your thoughts on the Rooney Rule? I think the Rooney Rule did its job. Mm-hmm. There, there have been times where there were, you know, six, eight black head coaches. Uh, the Rooney Rule, in my estimation, is a success. I don't think nobody is shocked if they hire a black uh, head coach or offensive defensive coordinator uh, because of the, and because of the success of uh, people like Tony Dungy and others who, who've gone on to do great things and and uh, you know no, it's it's really not that big of an issue. Uh, because now it's about winning and losing. Now, a number of black coaches got let go recently, but, you know, they got a, a few years to take a shot, and uh, they didn't win. So today, if you win, if, if you're a black coach and you're a part of a successful programs and you're underneath some successful guy's coaching tree, you will get an interview, you will get an opportunity, and I think the Rooney Rule is one of the greatest things that uh, uh, the NFL has uh, has done. Uh, I believe that Roger Goodell is a good man, and I believe he's thinking good things for his black players. Uh, most of his league is African-American, and he is very much in tune with uh, a lot of the issues that we face, and, and I see him as a good man. Last thing. Um for me, I want to ask you about Colin Kaepernick. Now, do you ever think he'll get a job in the NFL? Do you think he should? Well, I think he should if he still has the skills and that, you know, the, the talent, the, the physical ability. 
you know, I would assume that he does and that he should get a job. My overall opinion of that entire campaign is that it uh, it did bring a lot of things to it to the public's mind, but the, somehow it was uh, misinterpreted. You know, when you talk about Colin Kaepernick and that particular protest, most of my friends, you know, uh, that are that are not African American. They see it as disrespectful to the country, the military, the police, the firemen, uh, you know, the flag, the national anthem. And it's none of those things. And no one has been able to stop that negative narrative and say, no, we are talking about social injustice. You know, we have video of black men getting shot in the back, black kids getting shot holding a cell phone, black kids getting shot walking in the wrong neighborhood. You know, that's what the protest was about. But we allowed it to be turned into something very negative. It hurts former players. Uh, You know, we're out trying to get speaking engagements, trying to uh, do business out in the community. And there is an element out there that is taking it out on, you know, my guys, my alumni guys. Uh, when we were not really a part of that. And and my other thought, and this is an unpopular thought, I'm sure, is I thought it was a lazy protest. Mm. If you're going to protest, make a sign, get a permit, and go walk a few miles somewhere. I, I thought doing it at work was a... I mean, that's not the way the, the great protests were uh, managed throughout our successful history of delivering ourselves to the qualities that we uh, enjoy today. So I thought, I thought it was lazy. I, I, I agree with it, uh, and I defend their right. I defend Kaepernick's right. You know, and I've had, I had one guy yell at me across the table. I went to Vietnam, you know, for that flag. And I had to stand up and say, you idiot, nobody's, protesting that flag you know we love that flag as much as anybody else and we have more blood and sweat invested in that flag than anybody else we love the black black people are very patriotic Mm -hmm. hell we built it right you know we dug it out of the dirt we picked it off the leaves you know we built the white house we we were the professional trades people who were rented out by owners from from uh, person to person, from uh, farm to farm. So we built that flag as we've got as much invested in that flag as any other color of people uh, in this country. So I don't think there's any player that doesn't stand and, and, and isn't emotional during the national anthem before a game. But there were too many things happening to to, to black people, and now that we have uh, cell phones, we see it for real, and it was painful, and I understand the protest, but I wish they had, um, you know, walk around the stadium before the game with the crowd, with, with some with some uh, posters, So yeah, go I, in and I was do, gonna your, ask. do your job. Right. I was right. going to ask, so when you say lazy, you, you, you mean that they didn't protest properly? Uh, no, they they protested properly, and they are Americans, so they have the right to kneel 
during the national anthem. It, you know, peaceful protest is one of our uh, rights. I just thought it was it's pretty easy to, to drop a knee during a two-minute song and then stand back up. You know, that's not what Martin Luther King went through. You know, I said lazy. Maybe I should say convenient. But, um, but you know, if, if the players were passionate about that and if they, if they, uh, if they were really serious, I, I can see showing up at the game a couple of hours early when there's thousands of people in the stands and cameras everywhere ready to go. Take a lap around the stadium on the outside. Subject yourself to the abuses and the pros and cons that Martin Luther King subjected himself to. You know, people yelling at you, calling your name, people cheering you, saying, I agree, I disagree. You know, they were in a safe environment with police all around them, taking a knee and then standing up. So that's what I mean by convenient. And the only reason I'm taking this stance is that it hurts former players, and my job is to be an advocate for retired players. Well, Beasley, thanks so much for this, man. This was great. Uh, we could talk about this for another two hours. Um, and I uh, think you have to come back. You'll have to come back and, uh, we'll finish the conversation. But this has been great. Uh, Beasley, I guess has been, uh, Beasley Reese. He's the CEO of NFL alumni, is doing a great job of, uh, bringing attention to health issues with retired players. Uh, Beasley, thanks so much, man. It's, it's been great hearing your voice again, and uh, let's let's definitely stay uh, stay in touch. I appreciate everything. All right, hey, Beasley, thanks so much, man. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Beyonce's Netflix documentary of her legendary performance at Coachella last year. So don't go away. Do not go away. I'm telling you, don't go away. The 2019 Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival, usually just known as Coachella, just ended. Thousands of people flocked to Indio, California to see artists like Childish Gambino, Janelle Monet, Solange, and Wiz Khalifa perform. Now, I'm sure those performances were great, but everyone is still talking about last year's festival. That's largely because its first black female headliner, Beyonce, just dropped a documentary of the performance on Netflix. We're not going to spoil it for you, but... For two hours and 17 minutes, Beyonce tells us about her pregnancy with the twins, her preparation for her performance, and her love for HBCUs. We have with us in studio, editor for the Huffington Post Black Voices, Taryn Finley. Now, Taryn was at Coachella last year, live and in person. So today, she's live and in person in our studio. So we like her to share her, her thoughts about being having a bird's eye view of the performance. But also, 
what uh, Beyonce's performance means and meant for HBCUs. Andy, first of all, welcome to the show, Taryn. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess first... Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Tucker. Uh, would you have gone to uh, Coachella if Beyonce hadn't been headlining? And, and was that your first time? So that wasn't my first time. That was actually my second time. I had gone two years prior. I had just graduated uh, from grad school. And I was like, well, you know, I'm getting older. And, <laughs> you know, my energy for festivals and my tolerance for festivals is going down. So I'm going to go. This is on my bucket list. But when I found out that Beyonce was um, going to be there the year after I went, I was like, oh, my God, I clearly went the wrong year. Mm. Fortunately for me and a lot of other people, uh, she unexpectedly got pregnant and um, we were able to plan for uh, the following year, which was last year, Beachella. And <laughs> appropriately so that we call it Beachella because she really turned that festival out. She when she said in the documentary that she wanted to leave the flower crowns at home and and bring black culture. It definitely felt like a different festival last year. It felt like home. It felt so familiar in a way that I didn't experience Coachella before. I mean, as soon as the um, the risers went up and it revealed the bleachers, the pyramid bleachers, my heart dropped because I knew exactly what was going on. I'm like, wow, she is doing this for us. This is like thoroughly the culture that I experienced at Howard. Mm. I mean, she had the the majorettes, the drum line, you know, she was just there fully unapologetic in her blackness. Mm. And when she sang the black national anthem, mm. my God, mm. I, I felt that in my heart and I tears streamed down mm. like I, I, mm. I hadn't felt that familiar and like I was at home like that since I graduated from Howard in 2014. It was such a moving experience. What would you say the reaction was amongst the crowd, you know, maybe for the the people who never had exposure to HBCUs or had never seen an HBCU band or heard an HBCU band or seen that kind of pageantry or like in the doc, Beyonce said that swag. So how do you think the crowd reacted to for those who had never really had that HBCU experience? Before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think initially, in uh, full disclosure, most of the people around me, I'm, I'm unsurprisingly, were white. I was there with two of my um, fellow um, Howard Bison, and so that was like in my immediate vicinity. It was just like us three black girls among you know mostly white people in the area that we were, and we were like relatively close to the stage. Um, so the energy was up, you know, when she first started, when the drums, when the band started playing. But once she kind of got into uh, the groove and folks understood what was going on, or at least we understood what was going on, I could tell that there was some... Uh, I guess confusion <laughs> and you know folks were definitely unfamiliar especially you know when you get to the black national anthem myself and my two girlfriends we had our fist up because that's what we do when we're at HBCUs and we right. hear you know the black national anthem but right. they didn't really understand the gravity or magnitude of lift up your voice because I'm assuming they hadn't heard it before but right. they knew that it was for us i think um judging from the girl next to me it was like you go girl i'm like girl yeah my face i'm trying to enjoy beyonce (laughs) (laughs) 
Fact. So with the documentary, did it make you feel like you were back <clears throat> in that moment again? Like, did, how how well do you think the documentary captured what you felt being there oh live? My goodness, I I think it did justice. It did it did its justice. Um, so when the doc dropped on Wednesday, I held like an impromptu um, watch party at work. And invited, you know, just my black co-workers because I'm like, this is for us and we need a space because a lot of times we have these spaces or we think we say we need these spaces in times of trauma. We also need these spaces in times of levity and times of celebration to fellowship. And it definitely felt like a big fellowship there, like among, you know, went at the let out and, and I'm seeing like the black uh, festival goers there I'm like you see that girl like we we're key king and we're we are exchanging that energy and that same exchange of energy was felt when I was watching it among my black co-workers and just to have that context of Beyonce expressing that she wants to go to an HBCU her putting these um, you know this air of academia in it with quotes from Toni Morrison mm-hmm. from Audre Lorde and you know from folks who have who, from prominent folks who have attended HBCUs and putting that context behind it, I think it added so much yeah. weight to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the concert, uh, at the end of the concert, she announced the Homecoming Scholars Award program where she gave $25,000 to a student at Xavier and uh, Louisiana, Wilberforce, Tuskegee, and Bethune-Cookman. In fact, one of our Rodent Fellows, Alana Barfield, is a recipient of one of those scholarships. What did you think about that when she made the announcement? She put her money where her mouth is. You know, because it's one thing to say, like, oh, we need to support HBCUs and, you know, give big ups to the culture and the celebratory parts of it. But when it comes to, like, actually facing the issues that HBCUs are having today, you know, the fact that, you know, Bennett College, you know, still hasn't gotten out of its financial woes and a lot of other colleges are facing, um, you know, potentially closing the doors or losing their accreditation. Like, that is real. That is real. Mm -hmm. And, And we need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to make sure that these colleges are not only valued um, at a financial level, but also just at a cultural and societal level. So I was just really ecstatic when I heard that she was doing this. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people have lauded the performance as as an ode to HBCUs uh, and black culture. And in fact, she reveals, I mean, Beyonce even said that she wished she had gone to an HBCU. Do you, this is kind of an outside shot. Do you think that could boost enrollment at all? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly, because enrollment is down right now. But, I mean, we saw, you know, a slight spike um, after Trump was um, after Trump was elected. But um, in general, enrollment is is down uh, across the board at HBCUs. So I think with Beyonce, with her having not only a national but a global stage, I think more people will start to understand mm-hmm. the relevancy and the importance of HBCUs. You know, these are not only just colleges, just universities. They are spaces for us to go to cultivate yeah. our best selves and and not have to deal with I, I've talked to some of my friends who go to PWIs or mm-hmm. graduated from PWIs and the stress and the emotional labor that you have to go through in order to just like exist on yeah. these campuses and prove that you belong. I didn't have to deal with that. 
And I'm so grateful I didn't have to deal with that because Howard and so many of these other HBCUs, like we always talk about the top HBCUs, but we need to, you know, talk about the Prairie Views, the TSUs, the, you know, Clark Atlanta's, like all of these others. Um, I, I think that the environment that these schools create for black students is so vital. It's so vital in reminding us and and making sure that we unlearn some of the toxic things that we learned probably in our public schools, you know, um, about our identity. You know, I, I was just so reinforced in who I was by being at Howard and I had a new view um, more expansive view on what blackness is and what it can be and what I professionally can be. Mm. Right. And, and, and you talk about the importance of, you know, of what HBCUs mean to, you know, black culture. And we see the struggle of, you know, with some of the, the HBCUs like Bennett have gone through, um, even here in Atlanta at Morris Brown, we've seen the struggles that they've gone through. And Beyonce talked about the influence that, Texas Southern had on her life, that prayer you had on her life. And people ask if HBCUs are still necessary. Do you think that Homecoming and Beachella gave an answer to that? Um, I think they're a start to an answer. Um, I mean, as far as convincing those who who think otherwise, um, because I've always like my my dad. Um, he went to Central State University. Mm. He didn't graduate, uh, but you know, so that HBCU, like the importance and relevancy of those, um, has always been in my life. Um, even when I was applying for, like, I remember one of my teachers saying, "Why would you want to go to a black school? You oh, could, wow. really? you, you're bright enough to go to, you know, a Ivy League." And I'm like, "Well, this is my Ivy League." You know, so I think within within our community, a lot of us, you know, know that it's relevant, but there's still some convincing within our community and there's some convincing outside as well. And I think with that convincing and with uh, with Beachella, with this documentary, I think it's starting a conversation and giving folks um, more giving HBCUs more visibility to people who may be Beyonce fans, may even just maybe not be Beyonce fans, but because of the stage and platform she has, they may for the first time hear and know what an HBCU is. Right. I'm tired of explaining to white people <laughs> what the acronym stands for. Like I think it should be second nature by the <laughs> Right. Right. Well, by first turn, my dad went to Central State too, and um, the other side of the documentary showed her work ethic, her pregnancy, how she bounced back from that. So, what do you really think makes her? I mean, that makes her stand out from a lot of other performers. But just speak about what made that showing that side of her so special. The stuff that we don't normally see from Beyonce. Man. <laughs> I think, and I love Beyonce so much because she's so strategic. I know people like complain because she's strategic in in this social media age. We want to see every bit of our favorite celebs live. I don't need that. I really don't need that. But the fact that she chose this documentary about, you know, Beachella, about HBCUs to reveal, honestly, to me, and I've been a long time Beyonce fan, this is the most vulnerable that I've seen her give us, you know, talking about not only just like the issues with pregnancy and highlighting 
a big conversation around, you know, the uh, black women um, in maternity, uh, but also highlighting the importance of practice and mm. and rehearsing and um and wanting to wanting to get better and we don't see Beyonce really like in these awkward or like messing up phases. So to see her as an untouchable an, an untouchable black woman like say yes I am at this level is because I worked hard. I think that that will inspire so many people, whether you went to an HBCU or not, like what, whatever level you are. I think that it is really important to see that because there's a quote in the doc, you know, you can't, you can't be it unless you see it. Mm -hmm. So whether you want to be an artist, whether you want to be an entertainer, whether you want to go to space or whatever, like I think Beyonce is that inspiration in this documentary is that inspiration for whoever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. uh, Our our guest is uh, Taryn Finley. She's an editor at Huffington Post, Black Voices. You talked about it. Where'd you, where'd you grow up and where'd you go to grad school? You were talking about that transition. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, you know, small with Midwest city. Um, of course, went to Howard right after I graduated from Howard in 2014. I went to um, Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I did eventually get to that Ivy League that right. that um, my professor or that my teacher um, asked me about going to. And honestly, sometimes I forget. Sometimes I forget. Um, it was a one year program, but I don't think that's why. What I school? For- school Columbia. Sorry. Journalism. Yeah. Columbia Journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Sometimes I forget because I didn't feel as welcomed or as um, nourished as when I went to Howard. You know, I definitely, for the first time, had a PWI experience on a college campus. And, of course, grad school, like that grad school experience is going to be different than undergrad. But it didn't feel warm Mm -hmm. to me. It was definitely a great program. You know, I had great professors who um, I still keep in touch with, and they're amazing. But overall, that experience um, is not touching my Howard experience. Mm. Yeah. And I really feel like I feel like I was prepared for um, to go into journalism when I graduated from Howard. But unfortunately, because a lot of employers um, especially employers at national uh, media organizations that are, you know, mostly white run. I, I think they didn't think that I was prepared because I didn't have that name. So mm. unfortunately, I feel like that access still is barred from a lot of amazing students at HBCUs. I mean, the oh, most wow. talented, the cream of the crop. Like these programs really teach you how to hustle. They teach you how to grind. They teach you. I I had five internships coming out of Howard. Oh, wow. So the fact that somebody was telling me that I wasn't prepared, mm. I was like, uh, okay. Right. right, right. Well, we have two bright HBCUers on the line. What do you guys think about that, uh, Janae and Tucker? I've realized that there's nothing like the HBCU experience um, because when I came to, before I came to Morehouse, I was one-track minded. I was an athlete. Um, I was one track minded on being an athlete, you know, and Morehouse kind of changed my my aspect and and changed my outlook on life. And I realized how big HBCU networks are and how many people, you know, 
have gone to, how many influential people have gone to HBCUs and um, just the impact that, you know, you can you can make in this world coming from an HBCU. Yeah, and with me, um, I was kind of like the same way with sports. So I chose an HBCU to go to play softball at Alabama A&M. And I think going to A&M um, actually helped me see a lot more than my experience at Clark, only because it's, I went to an HBC that's not talked about, and we were, like, in an area that not a lot of people were in, in Huntsville. So just having that sense of community, like, it didn't matter if it was a fashion show or just the cast, like, everybody was there. Everybody had fun. It was just a fun atmosphere. And then I tra- when I transferred to Clark, it was a lot of that same stuff, but it was just it's something different, especially when you go to a slack school like it, and you're not really in like a major city. Like it was just that sense of family that HBCUs bring that I feel like is unmatched. Clark is like a family too, but it's just like you know there's differences in every HBCU, and that's the one thing that I hope that homecoming will bring. Like I like how in the beginning she shouted out different schools like A and M, Alabama State. Of Prairie View, like a lot of people only talk about Howard, the AUC, or Hampton, and I hope that homecoming allows people to really explore the other options in HBCUs too. I think she wore a Morehouse T-shirt, right? And uh, I think Alabama A&M had a band and and uh, at the performance. Or exactly. At, mm-hmm. Know, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was repping the house. Yeah. Yeah. She could have had Morgan's man there, but yeah. <laughs> just, just nitpicking a little bit. That's, that's okay. yeah. just, just before we let you go, uh, what do you do? Uh, you, you're an editor for the Huffington Post. What are some of the stuff you do? Ooh, I do a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, I am the editor at HuffPost Black Voices, where I amplify our stories, no matter if they are social or political or uh, entertainment and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to make sure that we have control over our narrative, especially in a mainstream space. Um, and I work closely with um, my co-editor, uh, Jahan Jones, and we work on a lot of projects. Like um, We Built This, which was a initiative um, during this past Black History Month uh, in which we highlighted black movers and shakers, the history makers of today mm. who may not get as much um, as much recognition. Um, so it's just really a, a note of just giving people their flowers while they still can't while we while they can still smell them, um, as well as existing while black, a project that we launched uh, late last year to highlight the um the reoccurring not trend because this is something that's been going on for uh for years and years of our livelihoods just being disrupted uh by doing monday mundane things like going to starbucks to get coffee or Mm. wait for a meeting or walking our dogs or uh just you know simply driving while obeying laws Mm. and getting disrupted by either um the police themselves or people who want to call the police on us Mm. um so yeah we we try to cover a lot we're a small but mighty team Mm. uh last but not least um What's your, we talked a lot about Beyonce, but if you had to rank your top five entertainers of all time Ooh. right now, who would your five, uh, top five, I guess they black entertainers, I guess I could specify, but your top five entertainers of all time to, gonna, this, to this date? They were going to be black anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Beyonce, mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin, 
Prince. Mm. Ooh, these last two are. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of the last two. Would you take what's his name off the list because of his uh, um, uh, his uh, thing with women? Um, what are we talking about? Um, uh, out of my mind already. Uh, <laughs> you know, Gail King did the interview with him. Oh, you talking about R. Kelly? R. Kelly yeah. Well, he wasn't going to be on my list anyway <laughs> oh, of, okay. of top five entertainers. <laughs> okay. But, um, but yeah, um, yeah, he's out the paint. Um, um, who are my final two? Mm. Um, let's go with Earth, Wind, and Fire. I, I really wish I would have. Um, I really wish I would have been able to see an Earth, Wind, and Fire concert. And also Fantasia. Hmm. I know that's really interesting, but hmm. she puts on a show, and I know wow. people. I know people talk about when her. I see you live. Would yes. be crazy. Yes, I know people talk about her kicking off her shoes, and but I, she has so much heart and so much. Just I, I just love Fantasia so much, and I think what she brings to a live show is really special. Hmm. I'd be curious. Well, I'm millennial. What about Mary J? Oh yes! Oh my goodness! Yes. Wait, no, but does she, mm-hmm. Mary J. Does she not? Does, does she? Well, so so Janae, who would be your five, and Tucker, who would be your five? Uh, entertainers. It's uh, hard, right? <laughs> yeah, your top five. Yeah, that's that's. Beyonce doesn't wait. People that we haven't seen. No, just period. Your top five. Who comes, who comes to your mind? Your top five. At this point, okay, well, of all I time. went to one Beyonce concert and it changed my life. So Beyonce number one, mm-hmm. two, okay. Chris Brown. Okay, two. Did you 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 just said Mary J. Blige? Yeah, you, you said do? Mary J. Mm-hmm. I did say Mary J. So yeah, I'm gonna put her back. I'm gonna put her in there. That's three. Uh, Maybe we should. Just I would. I would want to see New Edition in their prime. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Four. The last one, I would have had to see a Tupac concert. Mm. Okay. Tupac. But well, what about you, Tucker? Did, uh, did Terry um, cover, cover all yours? Or my, you have... I would say one for me um, would be J. Cole. I know that Forest Hills um, tour was crazy, and he had the live album after that. Two. I saw Drake in concert. Drake in concert was Summer 16 uh, tour. Uh-huh. He he brought out Future and a whole bunch of other people. That was a that was a great show. Sheesh, this is hard. And and yeah, I guess we're doing uh, you know Dead or Alive, right? So I'll say Tupac and Biggie for sure, just because you know both of them. Even when I was young, I I knew about Tupac and Biggie, and then for uh. I'm gonna say Nipsey. I'm gonna say mm-hmm. Nipsey for five. Mm-hmm. You know, R.I.P. Nipsey because he just just his uh, influence. You know, on 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 the rap game and his influence on on the culture. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Nipsey. Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. What? Uh, if I had to do an honorable mention, Kendrick has to be there too. Kendrick puts on an amazing oh, show. So he'd be, he would be yeah. that next line, right? Six. Kendrick yeah, or like Kirk Franklin. I feel like going to a Kirk Franklin concert. I feel like Kirk puts on a good show too. Yeah. I really wish Kanye hadn't lost. And his Beyonce's time. always in there too. But you already said Beyonce, so <laughs> I wasn't going to mention her. Yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah, that's that, 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 you're, you're right with Kanye. I guess at some point it was Kanye was 
would have kind of been on that list before. He put on. He put on a. He yeah, put I, on a I've never show. seen Kanye in, mm-hmm. in person. So I, I wish show. I could have, but I've never seen him in concert. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I just, I want him to get some help. <laughs> hey, listen, Tara, this has been great. This has really, really been great. Uh, the Beyonce being an eyewitness to, to history uh, and just other history lessons. Uh, best of luck at Huffington Post. Uh, I believe that it's all, we compliment each other. We don't compete. It's complimentary. I know that's right. So we need each other. We, we actually do need each other. That's kind of get away from that concept. But, uh, you know, uh, we need you to be great so that we can be great. Of course. You of know, course. it's all part of the thing. So, uh, thank you so much. I'm honored. Yeah, no, absolutely. The pleasure's ours. Honor's ours. Uh, so, hey, thank you so much. And uh, for, for coming all the way to uh, Midtown, where, where is your office, by the way? Um, it is like near Union Square. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I came from Brooklyn because I wasn't going to the office before this. <laughs> They'll see me later. So. <laughs> Taryn, if people want to follow your work, how can they find you? Okay, so you can uh, follow Black Voices work, of course, um, um, at Black Voices on Instagram and Twitter um, and HuffPost Black Voices on Facebook. Um, and, of course, we're um, on HuffPost.com uh, backslash Black Voices. Um, and me personally, you can follow me um, at underscore T-A-R-Y-N-I-T-U-P that's underscore tearing it up on mm-hmm. Twitter and Instagram. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Ted, thank, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, hope to have you back here again now that you know where we are. No problem. Thank I'll you so back. much. Uh, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Yeah. It's great. Thank y'all. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, that's, that's all we have time for today. If there's anything else you'd like us to cover or if you just want to leave us a positive comment or constructive criticism, uh, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Roden Fellows. That's the undefeated hashtag Roden Fellows. You could also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at WC Roden. That's WC Roden. I also have an Instagram account, but I'm not quite sure what it is. But I am on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Janae and Adams. That's J A N A E and A D A M S. And I'm on Instagram. At Tuck T52, that's T U C K T52. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Matthewson, also a Howard grad. Uh, special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN digital audio content team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Uh, get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.